Heavenly Father, you alone in your wisdom uh, thought out this unbelievable plan that a lamb would rescue the souls of men. And uh, we thank you for sending your son uh, to be and do for us all that we could not be or do. Um, and for taking upon himself the punishment that we deserve and giving us the righteousness that we could never earn. Lord, I pray today that you would give us a revelation of your grace. Um, I, I pray that your grace would really run deep into our hearts, God. Uh, Lord, in every secret closet of our heart where there is shame um, and a really, I don't know, deep desire to, to not let anybody see certain things, I pray that your grace would just run there this morning uh, and that you would bring healing and hope and mercy and that you would truly uh, let each heart know how much you love them. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for the time that we get to spend together in your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Grab your Bibles, please, and go to 1 Thessalonians. We are going to be, uh, this will be our last week in 1 Thessalonians. Um, we have not covered everything. Again, it's part of the Bible reading plan. And today, we, or this past week, we were reading in chapter 5, if you're following along. However, today I'm going to be speaking out of the very end of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and the beginning of chapter 5 um, because those two sections kind of go together. Again, the uh, chapter and verse divisions are not part of the inspired text and originally this was just a letter and it is all one continuous flow of thought between those two things. Um, I'm going to do something a little bit different the way this morning. Usually I read the text and then I pray again and then we kind of get into it and I kind of show you what's what's going on there. I'm going to just read the text and give some running commentary this morning as we go through it because uh, there's a lot to explain in here. Uh, what we're dealing with this morning is something uh, that is usually uh, perks everybody's interest, um, is very interesting to people, and that is the study of eschatology or the study of the last things or, or the end times. Um, again and again and again, as Christian researchers like Lifeway and Barna um, do their little surveys or whatever on what are the most popular sermon topics, almost always the thing that is number one is eschatology or the study of end times. And we'll talk a little bit uh, about why that is this morning. Um, usually, in my opinion, one of the reasons there's so much interest in it uh, is because we get caught up in some details that I don't think that uh, that the Bible gives us, um, and yet the Bible does give us a lot, and the Bible does talk about it a lot, uh, and it should be very central to our worldview, and the way that we think is that uh, we do not think that time is just going to go on perpetually. There, there is an end date. There's a time when the buzzer ends, and the clock has counted down, and Jesus is coming back to bring uh, a new heaven, uh, to create a new heaven and a new earth, um, and to make all things right. And so we're going to look at this uh, in detail today because this is one of the places in the New Testament that speaks about it uh, in detail. And so I'm going to start in uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, 
and I'm just going to read. Now, just to give us some little handle here, these are kind of big, um, big headings, but I would kind of argue that chapter 4, verse 13 through 18, through the end of the chapter, is kind of speaking about how this is going to happen, how Christ's return is going to happen, and some details in regards to that. And then chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, uh, is speaking more about when it will happen. So kind of the how uh, and, and the when. Um, but let me just begin to read, and I'm going to give some commentary uh, along the way, and then I'm going to circle back around at the end and give us three really important implications um, about this text and, and, and why it matters. But First Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 13, he says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Now, he uses this word asleep. He's going to use it three times in the first three verses of this passage to speak about those who have died in Christ. In other words, people who believed in Jesus but have uh, since passed away. Okay, That's what he means when he talks about them being asleep. And he's saying, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. In other words, those who have died in Christ. People who were a part of the Thessalonian church or the church uh, even in our day, throughout any time that die uh, in Christ. He says that you may not grieve as, as others who do not have hope. So we grieve. Grief is a part of this life. Because of sin, because of the fall, because of um, our rebellion against God, uh, the wages of sin is death. Death still happens. We will grieve, but we are not to grieve as others who do not have hope. And again, this is something we're going to come back and talk about, but all of this, Paul is frames within the context and the exhortation to have hope and courage, okay? And that's important to keep in mind because so many times uh, when we talk of the last things, it always inspires, it's, it's, it tends to inspire fear and some trepidation, and it shouldn't. It should give us hope when we understand what the Bible has to say about it correctly. Um, he says, we don't want you to grieve as others who do not have, have hope. Verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, please notice here that the foundation of our theology of the second coming is based uh, explicitly upon our theology of his first coming. He speaks here of Jesus' death and resurrection. That was his first coming. That was primarily what he came to do. That when he came the first time, he, was going, he came to die for sin. That's why he came. That's not why he's coming the second time. The second time he's coming to rescue all those who have trusted in his death and resurrection, alone for their salvation, and to bring judgment and eternal punishment to those who have rejected the offer of the gospel, to anyone who has not accepted the free gift of eternal life that is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, So Jesus comes the first time, and he dies for our sins, and he rises again, and it is his resurrection that is the foundation of our hope. So when he came the first time, Jesus kept saying this, I'm going to die, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, they're going to crucify me, I'm going to rise again. And the disciples didn't get it, not because he didn't make it plain, but because they did not have a grid that, that what's, what are you talking about? Like, this has to be a metaphor, right? Like, you're going to, they're going to crucify you, put you in the grave, then you're going to just get back up and come back out? Like, they had no grid for this. They're like, what, what, what does that mean? Like, they would say this again and again and again. Uh, you can read about it in the Gospels. Even the disciples would say this. What does he mean by this? It, it meant that he was going to die, and it meant that he was going to rise again. That's what it meant. And that's important because, like, well, what do you mean, Eric, that Jesus is going to come back? I mean he's going to come back. That's what I mean. He did it the first time outside of any sort of paradigm that we had for reality, but he did it, and he's going to do it again a second time, and his word tells us explicitly, and we can know that it's true because he did it the first time. And he always keeps his word. 
And so you've got to understand this, is that, again, our theology of the second coming needs to be rooted and grounded in our theology uh, of his first coming. And again, he says, even so, middle of verse 14, through Jesus, everything that God does is through Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So when somebody dies, their body is in the ground, but their soul immediately goes to be with Jesus. Uh, Keep going here, verse 15. Um, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. It's it's a little bit hard uh, to discern. There's some debate, but it seems to be that the, the question that the Thessalonians had seems to revolve around what happened to those who had already died. And again, the reason that is, is because this teaching of the Lord's second coming was very, very central to what Paul had taught them the first time that he was with them. So central to the gospel message that Paul taught when he would go into a place like he did into the the city of Thessalonica, and we've talked about this, he was only there for a couple weeks before he kind of gets run out of town uh, by angry mobs. But central to the teaching was that Salvation is found by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, his death, burial, and resurrection. But also central to that teaching is that God is, there's going to be a day when God judges the living and the dead. And they seem to know this, and yet they thought, well, okay, so we're to be waiting for his coming, and yet what happens to those who died and aren't, and aren't here? Will we ever be reunited with them? And Paul was answering uh, that question. Again, end of verse 14, he's going to bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Um, And he's speaking here specifically, uh, when I said this section was about the how, specifically how this is going to work with us who are left until his coming and those who have already died, whose bodies are in the ground, but whose souls uh, are with Jesus. Um, And what Paul's basically going to say is it's kind of like a big family reunion, or that's kind of the effect. So this past um, summer in June, uh, my grandma passed away, uh, 90 years old, uh, went here to, to Mercy Hill, um, uh, just a lovely, lovely lady. Um, one, now, this was not the main reason why we gathered. I wouldn't, I wouldn't call her funeral a reunion. It's not apples to apples. However, that was one of the effects, is I got to see a lot of cousins that I was close to growing up that I had not seen in many years. And so her death was an occasion for us to get together and, um, and see each other, and there was, it, it was just good. It was good to see everybody. It's kind of the same idea here. Is that obviously the main event is Jesus himself coming back. But we will also be brought together with those that we have lost and those that we have not seen in a long time. And it's a wonderful thing. Again, I I can't stress enough that when we talk about eschatology like this, like Paul is writing this from a very personal, caring, pastoral concern is that they're grieving. And he says, I don't want you to grieve like those who don't have hope. Those loved ones that have died in Christ, you will see them again. This is what he's emphasizing. Again, verse 15, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And again, just to give give some... uh, uh, some grounding here as to why I keep saying that when somebody dies in Christ, that their body is in the ground and their soul immediately goes to Jesus. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, 
verses 21 and 23, it says, for to me to live is Christ, Paul says, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. For I desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Paul, Paul says without any hesitation that to die is to instantly be with the Lord. Jesus told the sinner on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. He says, yes, we are of good courage. Why is he of good courage? He says, because we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. But so whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Paul knows that to be absent from the body is to, to be with Christ. And so he's saying here, it's not, we're not going to precede those who have fallen asleep. He's got, Jesus is going to bring them with him. Verse 16, what's this going to be like? Well, here's, here's some of the most detail um, in this one little verse, verse 16, that we get anywhere about the second coming. And it, it actually, the detail that we get, the information that we get, kind of the answer that we get, it will absolutely inspire more questions than you already have. But that's kind of the way prophecy works. Is like It tells us something, but then what it tells us actually causes more question. But that's not a bad thing because it makes us long for it. But look at verse 16, and we'll come back at, at the end and we'll talk more about this, but this is absolutely beautiful. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven. Just like he ascended after his resurrection and the disciples were standing there watching him go, in the same way the angel said that he was going to come back. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And here he says, and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have died already, whose bodies are in the ground, souls are with Jesus, when he comes back, gives a command, the dead will rise and their soul be reunited with their body. Then, verse 17, what happens to us? Like if you were to come back today, verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will also be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, verse 17, much has been written about verse 17. And if you've ever studied eschatology or uh, the study of the last things, is verse 17 is very central. And um, one of the terms that you'll hear thrown around a lot is this word, the rapture. Has everybody heard of the rapture? Anybody? The rapture. It comes from verse 17, and only from verse 17. The word itself is, is used in other places in the New Testament, but in regards to the second coming of Christ, the word rapture is only used here in verse 17, uh, and it's actually from the Latin. Again, look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. Uh, the Greek word is harpazo. It, it, it's, a, um, it's somewhat of a, a, a kind of, not violent, but like serious term. It means to seize, to carry off by force. It's forceful, I guess would be the better way to say it. It's a forceful term saying we will be caught up. If Jesus comes back today, we will be harpazoed, caught up. <coughs> Excuse me. The Latin word is rapere, which is where we get the word rapture from. And for whatever reason, we liked that Latin word, and so we kind of just transliterated it into the English, and so we get the word rapture. But it's this idea of being caught up together with the Lord in the air. Now, um, I said that a lot has been written about verse 17, specifically in regards to the rapture, because this is where uh, 
there are a lot of uh, in-house debates, I guess you will call them, and people get pretty passionate about them in regards to the study of the end times. And, and the, the specific question is, when exactly is this harpazo, this rapira, this rapture, this being caught up, when is this going to happen? Um, and not just when, like, in, in terms of time and date, but what is going to be the order of the sequence, and specifically, what's going to happen immediately after it? Okay? Now, far and away, um, probably the, the view of the end times or eschatology that is most popular today is what has been popularized by what most people know as the Left Behind series. Anybody familiar with the Left Behind series? Movies, books, can I get that picture up there, Josh? <coughs> Here's the real question. Did you watch the Kirk Cameron version or the Nicolas Cage version? Um, oh, how the mighty have fallen, Nicolas Cage. Uh, you take that down. Um, <laughs> But this is generally what people have in mind when they think about the rapture, is that we're going to be caught up, that, there's, that the real question hinges on whether or not you believe what Paul is talking about in chapter 4 here, that we just read, is something different than what he's going to continue to talk about in chapter 5. Okay? This is kind of of the utmost importance. I want to say this up front in regards to um, views of the end times. Some of you this morning with what I'm going to say, it's going to frustrate you for a couple reasons. So you're just fair warning. Um, one is that I'm not going to give you all the details that you probably want. Secondly, is that if you love the Left Behind series, I just want to caution you. I'm glad we can laugh about that. Thank you, Paul, because some might not. Um, here's what I want to say up front, is that the return of Jesus Christ should absolutely inspire, produce unity among God's people. Amen? This is our great hope. However, I said earlier that there are, there are a lot of different variations of how we th people think Everything is going to go down. And I want to say this. There are really good, godly men that I look up to and would call champions of the gospel that fall on all sides of this debate. Okay? Um, usually in regards to the end times too, this is where, you know, it's, it, it, first, I know this was me growing up. Again, if this wasn't your experience, um, it's okay, but this was mine, and I don't think it's all that uncommon, is that you almost could not talk about anything eschatological without drawing a chart. Anybody? The chart? Yes, yes. I took that as an amen. Um, the chart. So, Josh, throw, throw, throw a chart up there. I don't know which one you have in order. Yeah, there, there we go. Keep that one. Now, this would be, this would be by far and away, uh, again, the most popular view. Um, so, the Left Behind series, technically speaking, promotes what you would call uh, Premillennial, pre-tribulational dispensationalism. You're welcome. Um, you don't need to write that down, but you can if you want. Premillennial, pre-tribulational dispensationalism. But this is, where, and again, we don't, we're, we do not have time to press into all of this. I'm going to try to give you an overview. Let me say this: is if what I'm about to say confuses you more, that's okay, because. The Thessalonians were also confused by it. In fact, next week we're going to be in 2 Thessalonians, and Paul starts the book of the, or the letter of 2 Thessalonians by answering more questions about Christ's second coming. And you know why? Because they were confused by it. 
And I'm not saying about Paul is a bad communicator, I'm just saying it's a lot to take in. But here's what like, and I'll just touch on this one because it's by far and away the most popular review. In fact, I would be willing to bet that probably 90% of us, uh, if, if we hold uh, an eschatological view or feel confident in it, it would probably be this because this is what's sold uh, in all the books, the movies, um, most of the bookstores, um, and, in, and is taught in several prominent uh, seminaries throughout the United States. And that is, is that right now we are living in the church age, so the Spirit comes on Pentecost, we're living in the church age, and then there's going to be a rapture, which is true, we just read about that, we're going to be caught up, harpazoed up, um, but then the pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, dispensational view is that this is all going to happen before a very specific seven-year tribulation. So we will be raptured out, and then at the end of that seven years is actually this, the second return of Christ. And so pre-millennial, pre-tribulational, dispensationalists draw a very hard line between what is described in chapter 4 that we just read and also what is, and then what is described in chapter 5, which I'm about to read and explain in just a second. Um, and again, there are, there are very, uh, there's been good godly men that have believed this. Here's my, here's my, my press on this, and I'm only, you're like, Eric, why are you sing, 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 What's the word I'm looking for? Yes, singling. Single. Thank you. That was, whoo. That was rough. I don't think I've ever had something happen like that before. Why am I singling this one out? Why am I singling this one out? Because, again, it's by far and away the most popular. But secondly, um, it's by far and away throughout the scope of her church history, it is the most recent. No one before 1832 by a guy named John Nelson Darby ever held this view, okay? Since that time, and again, in the scope of church history, like the last 2,000 years, it's extremely recent. Um, Again, there are good guys that have held this view, but there's also a very practical reason for my caution, is that if you are just simply waiting around to be raptured out, and never think that we're going to go through any tribulation or suffering or that we're going to be gone before the Antichrist comes, I think it is a recipe for being deceived. We are to stay ready at all times. Um, So again, if you hold this view... We are friends. It may be true. Let me say this too. John MacArthur, who I would call a champion of the gospel, okay, I've quoted him many times, he would hold this view, okay? So it's not lost on me that I'm, I disagree with John MacArthur. It should also be said that a couple years ago, before my grandma passed away, and she's with Jesus now, so she knows what's going to be going on a lot better than I do, <laughs> um, uh, but I had just mentioned in passing in a sermon that I, I think the pre-trib rapture is a little bit sketchy. And my grandma had me over to her house to take me to task on that. I kid you not. She's like, what is, what is this about? You think we're going to go through the tribulation? I said, Grandma, I love you. you know. Um, so, but again, it, it, if it's true, I'm going. If it's not, I'm staying. And so are you. So, uh, but I just, we need to be ready. Okay, we got to move on. We got to move on. There are, several, there are several other views. Let me continue to go here in chapter 5. Let me just say, though, for the record, one of the reasons contextually that it's, it's a little bit sketchy is that the, uh, 
this was a letter. Again, the chapter and verse divisions were, were not here in the original. And so to read this, as, I think you have to read it into it to read two different comings, a secret rapture coming where he secretly takes us out and everybody's left behind like Kirk Cameron and Nick Cage. And then all of a sudden he's talking about something different in chapter five. I think that in the flow of thought reading this, he's talking about the same event. Okay. Chapter five, let's continue to read and explain. Chapter five, now concerning the times and seasons, brother. So what was he talking about before? He was talking about the how. This is what it's going to look like and the how specifically in regards to those who sleep in Christ, who have died in Christ. How's that going to be? Well, their bodies are going to rise, be united, and we're going to be caught up and we'll be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Chapter five, verse one now, I don't think he's talking about a different event. I think he's just talking about the when. And again, he's not going to give you the answer that you want. But chapter five, verse one. Now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. Why? Because this was already addressed adamantly when he was with them the first time. Verse two, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So he, he's, again, he's addressing the when. Now, when is this going to happen? Here's his answer. You're not going to know. But again, why would he suddenly be talking about a different event that happened seven years afterwards? Okay. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Verse 3. While people are saying, there's peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Now, this little phrase here, peace and security, this is not, I don't think, referencing a specific time in history. Why? Because people have always said this. This has always been the cry of the world, and this has also been the cry of false prophets and false teachers throughout the age, even way back in Jeremiah's day, so before Christ even came. The false prophets were saying, here's what uh, it says in Jeremiah 6, verse 14. It says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, says the Lord, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. In other words, here's what the world and here's what the false prophets say. It's all going to be okay. It's all going to be all right. It's okay. Nothing's going to happen. The second coming, nonsense. Everything's going to continue on. It's not going to continue on forever. There is a day when Christ is coming back. Um, We don't know exactly when it is, but we are to be ready. And just like it has always been throughout history, so it will be at the coming of Christ. People will be saying, people will be saying, peace, peace. Peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. Why this image of the pregnant woman? And ladies, uh, this is not my illustration. This is the Apostle Paul's, okay? Um, he uses the, the imagery of a pregnant woman. And the idea here, I think, is that the world, those who do not know Christ, they are pregnant with judgment and with God's wrath. And it is going to come. It is going to happen. And when it happens, they will not escape. There's no getting out of it. He says here in verse 4 then, But you, speaking to believers, speaking to the Thessalonians, speaking to us who know Jesus Christ, but you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Now, to be fair, the premillennial, pre-tribulational dispensationalists would argue that what he's saying here is that we will have already been taken out of the way. I don't think you need to read it that way at all, and I don't think it's a natural reading of it, but 
To be fair, that's what they, they would say, and, you know, God bless them. Chapter, verse 5, he says, For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep, as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Now, what he says there in verse 4, but you are not in the darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. I don't think he's saying we're going to know the exact hour in the exact day. But for the people of God who are living moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, welcoming, waiting for the return of Christ, for his kingdom to come, his will to be done fully, perfectly, finally, completely on earth as it is in heaven, when he comes, we're not going to be like, what's going on? We're going to say, yes, finally, here it is. Everything that we've been waiting for, all the injustice, all the wrong, all the sin, all the abuse, all the hurt, all the pain, righteousness in the flesh, Jesus Christ himself, risen, will be here. And all those things will be put perfectly under his feet. So that's what he's saying, not that we know the exact hour of the day, but we're constantly looking for it. We are children of the light. What does that mean? Children are image bearers. You know, some of you, some of you, got, you got kids that like, man, you've got them, little guys or girls, they are marked, man. There's no doubt that they are your kid, right? Um, they're image bearers of their parents. We are image bearers of the day, of the light of our good and glorious God. And what, what does he mean by this? Now, again, he doesn't just say, we're children of the day, therefore just sit back and relax and don't worry about it because that's who you are. He says, live like it. Live like who you are. We've talked about this already in this book. Live like who you are. And you know where light is especially effective? In places that are dark. Right? So in the midst of this dark world, in the midst of darkness, what is needed there? The people of God. Children of light. Not because we're great in and of ourselves, but we know the true light. The true light which brings light to everybody. Jesus Christ is coming into the world. That's how John starts his gospel. And we are to be light in the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. And so we're all up in the world bringing light into dark places to those who sleep and do not stay awake. Verse seven, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk are drunk at night. And he's using sleep here in a couple, in a kind of a couple different uh, ways or, or, or meanings, but he's, it's all word, word play. Verse eight, but since we belong to the day, again, this is who we are, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and of love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation is that we are to stay alert, we're to stay awake. Verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath. Again, what undergirds all of our eschatology or our theology of the second coming, the theology of his first coming. That he came to die in our place and the wrath that we deserve was poured out on Christ. For whoever believes in him will not perish but can have eternal life. Verse 10, that he came for us who died so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. And here again, he uses asleep being the idea of like when we die in him, 
that our body is sleeping, but our soul is with him. But he's saying, we gotta, we gotta stay awake that we might be with him. And then verse 11, and I hope you notice this, the way chapter four ends and the way verse 11 ends here of this section. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. That all that we're talking about here in the end, it is for our hope and for our encouragement. Now, that was a brief flyover. I know that I left some things out. For the sake of time, we just gotta keep going. But I want to give you three, at least three, and there are many more, but at least, at least three um, kind of observations and interpretations here. Or I'm sorry, implications. Uh, regarding what Paul is teaching here about the second coming of Christ. The first one is this, and I've mentioned it briefly, but I want us to sit in it for a while. Is that for most people, eschatology does not inspire hope and courage, but it inspires fear and trepidation or timidity. Maybe not, maybe not for everybody, but for most people, that's what it inspires, even most Christians. And if that's what your eschatology inspires, then I would argue that you're not understanding your eschatology correctly. Because Paul is writing very explicitly here to impart hope and courage to them. And how does he do that? By speaking of the second coming of Christ in the way that he has just, uh, that he has just spoken about it. And here's the thing, usually, that needs to change. Okay? So if the talk of end times inspires or produces fear or trepidation in you, here's what might be going on, okay? Is that you need to get your eyes off of the what, off of the how, and especially off of the when, okay? Listen, if you're all into like dates, when he's coming back, in love, I'm telling you this in love, please hear me, stop it. Stop it. You do not know when he's coming back. No one has, especially the guy that wrote 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Going to Come Back in 1988. <laughs> Sold well for a while, then not so much. You need to stop. Get your eyes off of the what, off of the how, and especially off of the when. But listen, get them on the who. Amen. Get them on the who. Look again back at chapter 4. Back at chapter 4 in verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Not suggestion, not just, well, I think this might be a good idea. He is going to command. That Jesus himself, when he speaks, it is the voice of God. And his voice commands the dead. That when he comes back, it's going to be a cry of command and the voice of an archangel. And you're like, why both? I don't know for sure. Okay, I don't know for sure. Here's what I think it will be like. If you ever watch like old war movies or whatever, like the, the king or the general or whatever, he will give the command, but he gives a command to the guy that's like usually like sitting right next to him or standing right next to him or maybe on a horse or something next to him. And he gives the command. He's like, uh, you know, archers, release the bows. And then he just says it to this guy. And this guy goes, archers, release the bows. And he says, it. I think Jesus is going to come back and it's going to be something like, let the dead come forth. And then this archangel is going to cry out, let the dead come forth. And there's going to be a trumpet. And it's going to be really loud. It's not going to be like a little kazoo. 
and the whole earth will see. And the dead in Christ are going to rise with new bodies. We who are left are going to rise to meet him in the air. If you want to know, just again, I could be wrong, okay? But here's what I think is going to happen immediately after we are raptured up. Is I believe we're going to meet him in the air and then we are immediately going to accompany him back down to the earth. He is going to destroy his enemies with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. You know, the, the battle of Armageddon, that's kind of a misnomer. It's not really a battle. It's the annihilation of Armageddon. And all of the enemies of God, all that is evil, Satan and all of his forces, they're going to be destroyed at Christ's very presence. And we will be accompanying him back to the earth. And he's going to set up his kingdom. And it is going to be beautiful. And we will live with him forever as we were meant to do originally. Yeah, let's clap. Amen. That's what it should inspire. This is what is going to happen. And it's going to be awesome. Get your eyes off of the when or the how or all the nitty-gritty details. Get them on to Jesus. If this, if this vision of the risen Christ does not inspire hope, then your wood is wet, okay? I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's incredible. Like, read about in the book of Revelation. He's coming back. He has a tattoo on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Did you know that? Like, Jesus has tattoos. Well, it's, it sounds like a tattoo. He has a name written on his thigh that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords riding on a white horse coming back to destroy, again, not the innocent, but all that is evil. It is good news that our God is just, amen? He is not going to let it go on forever. Satan, sin, suffering, death, all the effects of it, it's not going to go on forever. This is why throughout history, the book of Revelation, you have to understand, it's only in our lifetime or the last 60 to 100 years that people have read the book of Revelation looking for all these little codes, trying to figure out exactly when he's coming back. Throughout history, the reason people and, and Christians all over the world that have been laying down their lives literally for the sake of the gospel have read the book of Revelation is because in it, you see one of the most beautiful visions of the risen Christ. And that is what has inspired hope. That is what has caused Christians throughout the ages to not love their lives unto death. It's why they overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony because they would catch a vision of the risen Christ and it would give them hope and courage. Is that where your hope and courage comes from? Or are you trying to get it somewhere else? And this, this voice of God that one day is going, we're going to somehow like see it with our, our eyes and our ears like if he comes back today and it's going to be overwhelming. But this is the same voice of God that raises the dead now in human hearts. Paul says in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. It is the power of God. It's what we pray for every week that yes, one day this is going to happen manifestly, outwardly, finally, totally, perfectly, completely. But now week to week, and day, not just here on Sunday mornings, but throughout the week as we share the gospel, the power of God is going forward through our broken words through our imperfect attempt, attempts to point people to Jesus. But he is still raising the dead. 
And his voice, by the power of the, the proclaimed word and the power of the spirit that brings life, resurrection life, into people's hearts. And, and so even looking at this, this final and perfect, complete picture of what will happen one day, brothers and sisters, it should inspire hope for the here and now. This same Jesus that's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command is the same one that said, go and make disciples of all nations. And wherever you go, he ends up by saying, and I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age when this happens. Amen? Such, such good news. Second implication. I, and this is, this is one that I would just put under the category of something that's just true to life. And the word teaches it. Let me, give me a second to try to explain. So secondly, you will never really long for his return until you have experienced the sting of death and sin. You will never really long for his return until you experience the sting, the pain of death and sin. Is it, it's kind of obvious, we, we already talked about it, but why does Paul write this to the Thessalonians? Because they have loved ones who died. They have loved ones who died. And if you have ever lost somebody, you know that there's something in your heart that happens that wasn't there before. That makes you say, come, Lord Jesus, come. So if you've lost somebody, it's, the wages of sin is death, it, it happens. It, it's, and by as, a sin, I mean capital sin, that's just sin in general. It's part of Adam in the fall of Genesis chapter three. But the hope of the gospel is that even painful, bad things like the loss of a loved one, it, it can do something good in us. And the good is it will cause us to wait for this Jesus to come back in a way that we had not been waiting before. Not only losing somebody, but also simply just the, the pain of sin. Again, not just the pain of death, but, but just the pain of sin. I want you to look over in chapter 5 of this imagery that he uses here of staying awake. Verse six, so then brothers, don't sleep, don't sleep as others do. Stay awake, be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But now he begins to kind of mix the metaphor. What kind of sobriety are you talking about here, Paul? Verse eight, but since we belong to the day, let us be sober. And then he says, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The sobriety that Paul specifically has in mind is the sobriety of a soldier standing at attention, standing at his post, ready to do his captain's bidding at a moment's command. And again, this, this, this imagery of armor, and again, he, he's uses the metaphor slightly differently in Ephesians chapter 6, talking about how we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers unseen in the heavenly places here. It's just the breastplate of faith and love. 
mingles them together. And for helmet, the hope of salvation. Again, hope is the big theme uh, throughout, throughout this section. Um, but here, here's, what I'm, here's what I'm trying to say. Is that only a soldier who has seen battle truly understands the importance of this armor. Let me say that again. Only a soldier who has really seen battle understands the importance of this armor. In other words, if you're not in the fight, if you're not trying to stand against sin, against drunkenness, and not just, again, not just literally alcohol, but being drunk on the pleasures of this world and all the destruction that comes with it, if you're not trying to stand against that which wars against your soul, then you go, oh, yeah, breastplate and helmet, hope, I will let, well, that, that's cute. It's not cute. It's essential and it's life and death. And you appreciate it more when you've seen the casualties of the war that we're in, the spiritual war. Let me try to put more flesh on it. You know, what do you, just, I don't know, sin, sin stinks, amen? I bet we all probably have friends who have fallen away from Christ. And in the end, it, you know, we, Sometimes there's, there's usually a lot of excuses. But in the end, it's because of one thing, sin. It's not complicated. But not just friends who have fallen away in those types of casualties, but I'm saying even just sin in my own life. I, I, the longer I go, uh, I just, again, I'm not that old. I've been following Jesus for, I don't know, 22 years-ish. Um, I honestly thought it would be easier by now. But I still sin a lot. And, and, and again, hear me. We, we do not make excuses for sin. We do, not, uh, we do not say, let us do evil that good may abound. Never, never do we say that. But the gospel does give me a hope. Just like it does when you lose a loved one makes you long for heaven. But the gospel, the good news of Jesus does give me hope that even in my sin, when I bring it back to the cross, it makes me say all the more, come, Lord Jesus, come. When Paul cries out in Romans chapter seven, wretched man that I am, who's gonna deliver me from this body of death? He then gives the answer. He doesn't just leave the question open-ended. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. And friends, I want to ask you this morning, are you in the battle? Are you in the fight? Do you deeply appreciate what we've been given? This breastplate of faith and love and this helmet of hope that Christ is coming back. If I can sit in this for just a little while longer, there's a beautiful story in John chapter 11, of course, the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And, and this longing 
to be rid of sin and death is something that I think even Jesus experienced. It's a really neat little verse. Um, in John chapter 11, uh, you guys know the story is that Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick, and the implication would be, well, he, he should go to him because he's this healer, and Lazarus was his friend, but he doesn't. He stays away. And it's now been four days, and he finally comes, and Mary and Martha, who he loved dearly, are weeping and saying, Lord, if you'd just been here, where were you? Why didn't you come? And finally, he goes to the very tomb where Lazarus is buried. Uh, and it says in John chapter 11 and verse 32, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And then he says to him, says to them, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see and then there's that, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But back in verse 33, where it says that he was moved in spirit and greatly troubled. That's as best as we can do in the English. The, the Greek word is literally this idea of like a murmuring. It's, it's literally, it's, it's this. I, don't, I can't really describe it. Here's what Jesus did according to the text, is when he saw death in those that he loved. He... <sighs> Did you ever feel like that about your sin? Did you ever feel like that about the loss of a loved one? Again, Jesus is not um, impotent here. He is the resurrection and the life. And yet even the perfect sinless son of God was deeply moved and troubled in spirit. And what was he troubled at? He was troubled at the loss of his friend on one, le on, on one level, but also at the same time, I think of just everything that death represents. It's all because of sin. It's all because of rebellion against God. And Jesus came to make all that new. It's amazing what he did for us, friends. It's amazing what he did for us. He came to deliver us. And one day, finally, perfectly, totally, completely, he will. Lastly, um, just by way of implication here from the text, and very practically, brothers and sisters, we must help keep each other awake. The, the great implication or, or application that Paul makes here at the end of all is you gotta stay awake. You gotta stay awake. You gotta stay awake. You're children of the day. You're children of the light. You belong to him, but that doesn't mean that just because that's true that we can sit back and relax. You gotta stay awake. You have to make every effort to live like who you actually are. As children of the light. And this is a community project. It's not something that we do well on our own. I don't even think it's possible to do it on your own. It's why he's commanded us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together and to urge one another daily to do this. How many have ever gone on a road trip but you were a little bit afraid to go on the road trip by yourself? Especially if you're driving through the night 
to Florida or something. And, uh, you know, even if you haven't, like, you maybe you've told the other person, hey, listen, I, I'll do all the driving, but I need you to what? I need you to stay awake with me. Anybody? That's what we need. We need each other to help each other stay awake. And how do we do that? We remind each other that this day is coming. Not maybe, certainly. And the countdown is on. Worship team, you can come up and we're gonna close and then we're gonna take communion together. Um, over the last <coughs> several weeks, in fact, if I, I, I counted a couple times this morning, I believe I'm correct in this, from yesterday to the Saturday before, so eight, eight days, counting both Saturdays. In those eight days, Hannah and I sat through 13 soccer games. <laughs> Praise the Lord. It was good. I enjoy watching our boys play soccer, but it's a lot of soccer. Um, here's one of the things that I noticed about my kids playing soccer is they play, they, they play hard, and the teams all play hard. But there's, there's another gear that they find if they're down a goal or even if it's tied with like five, six minutes left. There's just another gear that they find, especially if they're behind. There's a, there's a level of desperation and of passion and of zeal that happens because they know, if I can just... Oh, They know that, I don't know if you can see this, but they know that the clock is ticking down. Amen? They know that the clock is ticking down. And I feel like, I've used this illustration before, but I feel like many of us view history not like the timer, but like the stopwatch. That's just going to run on forever. And I think because of that, we lack a certain desperation. We, we lack a certain zeal. We lack a certain passion that should mark us as the people of God. And one of the things um, that I always think when, again, they're maybe down a goal or so and the clock is ticking down and they're playing and we're just now all of a sudden we're on the attack. We've been on the, the, on the defensive most of the time, but now we're just on the attack. Here's what I always think. Man, if only they'd played like this for the whole game, right? If only they'd played like this for the whole game. Folks, not just in this passage, but from beginning to end, this is the reality of our world. It is ticking down. And God has given us just enough information in his word, in his wisdom and in his mercy. He's given us just enough information about what is going to happen so that every generation can play as though there's only a few minutes left. With passion and with zeal in doing what he's called us to do, to stay awake and to make disciples. That is our charge and that is what his second coming is supposed to inspire in us. Amen? You guys stand with me. If you're helping serve communion, I want you to come. I think this is beautiful that we're doing communion today, especially in light of the fact that we've talked about his second coming, because one of the first things that we are going to do
after Jesus comes back is we are going to participate in what the Bible calls the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus, on the night of the Last Supper, he told the disciples, he said, I will not drink of this cup with you again until I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And so 